نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله that is the praise belongs to Allah we praise him seek his assistance and forgiveness and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds This evening, we will like to begin the discussion or the explanation uh, of a book which has been selected in our series of explanations of books dealing with Al-Aqidah al-Islamiyah. And that book is entitled The Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah Wal-Jama'ah. Before reading from the book that we have selected for discussion and explanation, I would like to make just a few introductory comments including some basic definitions that are probably known to most. However, for the benefit of those who might not be familiar with some of the terminology, we should just take a few moments to explain the meaning of a few important technical terms. First, the first comment is that we want to remind ourselves, each of us should be reminded of the importance of knowledge the importance of knowledge in the life of a Muslim. And especially the importance of that knowledge which is the essence of the Islamic sciences, that is, the knowledge of the Islamic creed, Al-Aqidah Al-Islamiyah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an that which makes us to know that indeed His sending to the people, a prophet or a messenger, to teach them it is a favor and a bounty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Surah Al-Ali Imran, chapter 3, verse 164, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدَ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given His favor to the mu'mineen, to the believers, the people of Iman. إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْ أَنْفُسِهِمْ when he has raised up or sent or missioned a messenger from amongst themselves, it is a favor and a bounty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has sent a messenger from amongst the people. يَسْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ لَفِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us to know that the bounty and the favor of sending the messenger is that he recites to them. يَسْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ He recites to them the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The verses of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ And he purifies them. 
he purifies their souls that they might be fit to enter the paradise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he teaches them the book and the wisdom that is Al-Quran wa Sunnah, even if they were before that in clear error. Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us to know the importance of knowledge in his saying, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises up those from amongst you who believe and those who have been given knowledge degrees above other people. Those from amongst you who believe and those who have been given knowledge are raised up by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In another place in the Quran, Allah asks a rhetorical question. The answer is very clear. قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي الَّذِينَ يَعْلَمُونَ وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ Yani, are those who know and those who don't know equal? Indeed, the people of knowledge are superior to those who don't have knowledge. And the ayat of the site, the ayat of the Book of Allah and the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ showing the importance of knowledge are many. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an that it is the people of knowledge, the ulama, and only the people of knowledge who have khashya, who have fear of Allah. إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهِ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاء It is the people of knowledge, the people who have knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his names and his characteristics and his laws and that which he wants for the people and that which he has commanded them with. It is these people who fear Allah, the people who have knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he made us to know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he wants good for someone, if he wants them to have real true goodness, then he gives them knowledge, he gives them understanding of the deen. May yuridillahu bihi khayran yufaqihu fiddeen. If Allah intends for someone good, he gives them fiqh understanding of the deen. And that intention from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the irada of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is both types of irada, irada qawmiya and irada shari'iya, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his sharia, he desires and intends for the people good, and therefore he sends prophets and messengers and he gives them the revelation to guide them, to show them the way. And likewise, in his divine decree, he has decreed for some people. And in his irada, awmiya, he has decreed good for the people. It is those who hear the message and who take heed and who follow it. The Prophet ﷺ said that seeking knowledge, talibul ilm, qaridatun ala kulli muslim, is an obligation. It is not something that we do because we enjoy it. Or we feel that it is something praiseworthy. But it is in fact an obligation. Just as it is obligatory, or not to perform the five daily prayers a day, or to fast in the month of Ramadan, or to perform, to perform the Hajj or pilgrimage once in a life. And then likewise, it is farz, wajib, obligatory on every Muslim to seek knowledge, at least the minimal knowledge that is necessary in order for him to worship Allah and to deal with the people in the society in the way that Allah has legislated it. And Imam Al-Bukhari, the great scholar of Hadith, in his book of Sahih, he has entitled a chapter, Bab Al-Ilmu Qabla Al-Qawli Wal-Amali, that knowledge precedes speech and action. That means that no one is allowed to speak, nor to act until they have knowledge, because action and speech without knowledge is useless. Therefore, 
from these ayats of the Quran and hadith of the Prophet wasallam, it becomes clear to us the importance of knowledge and the necessity of seeking proper knowledge. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us al-ikhlaq, sincerity and seeking knowledge for his sake, that we may benefit ourselves and benefit others, and that we might earn his pleasure in this world and his paradise in the next, insha'Allah. The second comment that I want to make briefly, it is that just as knowledge, the knowledge of Qur'an and Sunnah, and the knowledge of Allah's legislation, and that which he has commanded and prohibited, just as it is important and it is a necessity for every Muslim to seek it, we should also know that the most important knowledge, it is the knowledge of the Islamic belief system, the creed, what Muslims are required to believe in. And this is proven by many things, from amongst them the emphasis that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has given to the importance of Islamic belief, al-aqidah. And that is shown in the fact that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has been missioned and commissioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to emphasize and to focus upon teaching the people the aqidah, and particularly or specifically the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for 13 years in the beginning of his mission until the migration to Medina when he began to teach the people the remaining matters of Islam, the laws of Islam that were secondary in, in comparison to Al-Aqidah. The scholars of Islam, to a great extent, have divided the Islamic sciences into two divisions. And this is not something that is an absolute matter. However, many of the scholars from the people of the Sunnah have classified the Islamic sciences into two categories, Al-Usul wal furu'ah Al-Usul, the fundamental, the fundamentals, the basics of the deen that are of necessity for everyone, and Al-Furu'ah, the secondary matters, the branches, that which branches out from the fundamental matters, and that means the Islamic laws, the jurisprudence. Al-Usul, the fundamental here, it means Al-Aqidah, the Islamic belief system. That is the foundation, and everything else is built upon it, and this is also a proof of the importance of Al-Aqidah Al-Islamiyah. For this reason, or for these reasons that we have mentioned and others, we want to we want to, or we decided to emphasize the study of Islamic creed or al-Aqidah al-Islamiyah, we decided to emphasize this and therefore we have taken upon ourselves the study of a number of very important books of Islamic creed and this evening we will begin with another of those books in this series, the Aqidah of the Sunnah wal Jama'ah by Al-Imam Abu Muhammad Abdullah ibn Abi Zayd al-Qayrawani rahimahullah. The Shaykh who has written an, a brief explanation of this book, Shaykh Muhammad Abdurrahman Al Khumayyid, Afilahullah, may Allah protect and preserve him. He said he made a statement in his introduction which is indicative of, or it is yani, in line with the reason for which we have selected this book. Yani, this book in particular, 
as opposed to some of the other books that perhaps we could have studied of Islamic Aqidah. He said in his introduction that this book is the second in a series of books related to the Aqidah of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The first of those books was the clarification of the Aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah according to the Madhab of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah. And that book was the book of Al-Imam Al-Sahawi, Rahimahullah, the great Hanafi scholar, who explained the Aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah as it was taught by the scholars of the Hanafi Madhab. This second book, it is a similar book. Its content is similar. Though it is shorter and simpler, but it is of similar content in that it covers the basic same materials, the arkan of Iman, arkan of Iman is sister, the six fundamental uh, pillars of faith, and some other secondary issues that he has covered. However, the point in choosing this book is that this book has been written by a scholar from the Maliki Madhab, the scholar, a scholar of the Maliki Madhab, Ibn Abi Zayd, Rahimahullah, Al-Qayrawani, and from this we want to bring out the point that just as the people have followed the Imam in the secondary matters of jurisprudence, Al-Furu'a, likewise, and it is more rightly so that they should follow those Imams in the fundamental matters, that is Al-Usul. If they followed the Imam in the secondary matters, about which they themselves differ on many points, then it is more right that they should follow the Imams in the fundamental matters upon which they have agreed. Upon which they have agreed. Therefore, we want to show in the study of this book the similarity and the agreement between the Aqidah of the scholars of the various madahid of Islamic jurisprudence, and that even though they differed in Islamic law, in their opinions related to legal matters, they are in agreement in these fundamental matters of the Islamic creed. Then he says that the author of this book, the original book that we will discuss and explain, the Ibnillahi Ta'ala, is Al-Imam Abu Muhammad Abdullah ibn Abi Zayd Al-Qayrawani, who was born in the year 310, and he was the sheikh, or the leader of the Maliki people and scholars in Al-Maghrib, in North Africa, and that which today is Tunis and Algeria and Morocco, in that area of North Africa. And he said that he was a person of knowledge, and the people benefited from his knowledge, to the extent that they called him Malik and they named him after Al-Imam Malik, the leader of the Maliki Madhab, the leader of the people of Medina, the great scholar of that time. They named him after Malik due to his similarity to him in knowledge and piety and worship. He said that he has many famous stands that he has taken against the people of innovation and the severity in which he has reprimanded them. And he has been praised by many of the scholars, the people of knowledge, as we will mention after this, the sayings of some of the scholars about him. And he has written many books. And he said that, وَكَانَ سَلَفِيًّا فِي عَقِيدَتِهِ وَسُلُوكِهِ 
that he was on the methodology or the minhaj or the way of the early generations of the Muslims, meaning the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum ajma'in, and those who followed them from amongst the Tabi'een and the following generations. He was on the way of the early generation of the Muslims, the Salaf, the first generation, in his aqidah, in his belief, as well as in his behavior. And this is a very important point, that it's not sufficient to follow the way of the Prophet or the Sahaba, or the early generation of the Muslims, merely in their belief, but also in our action, and in our behavior, and in our ibadah. Then he said he died in the month of Sha'ban, in the year 386, and he was buried in the city of Khairawan, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Rahmatan Wafiya. May Allah's mercy be upon him. The biography that is that I have taken, or that I have taken from, that I want to present this evening for the Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, the author of our book of discussion. It is a brief biography, and I have taken some portions from it, from the famous book, Seer Al-Ananam Al-Nubala by Al-Imam Al-Zahabi, Rahimahullah. Al-Imam Al-Zahabi in that book says that Ibn Abi Zayd, he was Al-Imam Al-Allama Al-Qudwa Al-Faqib. He was the Imam, the Allama, the great scholar, Al-Qudwa, the example, the model that people follow, and Al-Faqih, the scholar of Sikh. He was the Alim, or the great scholar of the people of Al-Maghrib, Abu Muhammad Abdullah ibn Abi Zayd, Al-Qayrawani, Al-Maliki, Yuqalahu Malik al-Saghir. He was referred to as Malik al-Saghir. Then he said that he was one of the outstanding scholars in Al-Ilm wal-Amal. He was one of the outstanding scholars, both in knowledge as well as in practice, in action, in work. And he wasn't just a person of knowledge, but he was a person who practiced that which he knew. Then Al-Imam Al-Zahabi, Rahimahullah, the great scholar of Hadith and student of Shaykh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, he quotes, most of what he has mentioned here from the scholar who came before him, Al-Qadi Ayyad, and he says that he has achieved the leadership, Riyasat al-Deen wa dunya that Ibn Abi Zayd, Rahimahullah, achieved leadership status not only in religious, in the religious side, but also in the worldly matters. The people looked up to him as a leader. That many people traveled to him from the various lands, and his companions were noble people. Many were those who took knowledge from him. And he is the one who summarized the madhab, the madhab of Sikh, of Al-Imam Malik, rahimahullah. He was the one who summarized it. And he filled the land with his writings. And he took Sikh from the scholars, the, the jurisprudence scholars of Khairawan, and relied mostly upon Abi Bakr and Labbad, and those, and he also, he, he mentioned other of the scholars that he has taken from and that he performed the pilgrimage and he heard from scholars there in Mecca and so on. He said that many people have heard from him or taken knowledge from him and he mentioned some of their names. And then he mentioned some of the writings of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd. He said that he has written the book Al-Nawadir and Al-Ziyadat. Al-Nawadir, those things which were rare from the madhab of Imam Malik and Al-Ziyadat. Yani those extra things that were not mentioned in the great book of Al-Imam Malik, Al-Mudawwana. 
and he has written that book in 100 parts. And he has summarized the Mulawana of Imam Malik, and it is from these two books, his book in Nawadir with Ziyadat, and his summar, summary of Al-Mudawna that the fatawa or the legal rulings of the people of Maghrib are based upon these two books of this great Imam Ibn Abi Zayd. He mentioned a number of his books from amongst them are Risala, a book which deals with the Maliki jurisprudence. And it has been said about this book that he wrote the book when he was 17 years old. And that book was so popular that the people were competing to get copies of it. At that time there were no printing presses, but they used to handwrite the book. And everybody wanted a copy of it. It was so popular that the book was written in gold. It was written in gold. And that book has been published even in the Western lands. There is a copy that has been published in translation in French and translated into English maybe more than almost 100 years ago. And it was published in Arabic in many of the Muslim lands. He also mentioned from amongst his books that he has written his book, Ajaz al-Qur'an, showing the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, and Nahyu al-Jidal, the prohibition of arguing and disputing and debating, and also his essay that he wrote in refutation of the deviant group from amongst the Muslims, the Qadariyah, who believed that man had an independent free will, outside of the authority or power or control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He also wrote an essay dealing with al-Tawheed, and he wrote a book concerning those, Man Saharraka Inda al-Kira'ah, and those who move back and forth while reading the Qur'an. He also mentioned, and Imam al-Zahabi mentions from, he also mentions from Qadi uh, al-Iyad, that with his greatness, or his great status in knowledge and in practice, he was also the barrin wa itharin wa imfaqin ala talaba wa ihsanin. And he was a person of righteousness, or dutiful to his parents, who used to give preference to others, and who used to spend upon the students, and he was very generous to all who came in contact with him. Then, Qadi al-Iyad mentioned, after this, the incident, it is said that one of the famous people of that time, Muhriz al-Sunati, was brought in front of him, the daughter of Ibn Abi Zayd, who was chronically ill. And that man, Muhriz, he was a direct descendant of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and he was famous for his zuhr, for asceticism and being pious. So that girl was brought in front of him, and he supplicated for her, and immediately she stood up. And she was healed from her sickness instantly. The people were amazed, and they declared the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he said, Wallahi ma kultu illa bi hurmati wa walidiha indaka itshif ma biha Allah. He said, I didn't say any more than that by the respect and honor the status that her father has in front of you, O oh Allah, remove from her whatever she is afflicted with, and Allah instantly heals her. Al-Imam Al-Zahabi, in the end of this quotation that he takes from Al-Qadi Ayyad, Rahimahullah, said, وَكَانَ رَحِيمُهُ عَلَى طَرِيقَةِ السَّلَفِ فِي الْعُصُولِ لَا يَدْرِيَ الْكَلَامِ وَلَا يَتَأَوَّلُوا فَنَسْأَلُ اللَّهِ التَّوْفِيقِ
and we ask Allah's tawfiq. He said that indeed he was following the way of the Salaf, the way of the early generations of the Muslims. When Islam was pure, before it had been corrupted, and before outside influence had entered into it, he was following the way of the first generation of the Muslims, the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet وسلم, and those who followed in their way, in the usul, in his aqidah. And his aqidah didn't have in it any distortion or corruption or deviation, but it was the pure belief of the first generation of the Muslims who were taught by the Prophet ﷺ. He said that he didn't know anything about al-kalam, the rhetorical philosophy of the people who deviated from Islam and used their intellect and their rationale to talk about the Book of Allah and the Deen of Allah instead of following that which Allah has revealed in the Quran and the Sunnah. And he didn't engage in ta'wil, the reinterpretation of the sifat of Allah, the characteristics of Allah, giving them interpretations that are not understood by their apparent meaning in the Arabic language. After these words of introduction, I just want to mention three definitions or three words that need to be defined, and they, those words are taken from the title of the book, Aqidah Ahl Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. What is the meaning of Al-Aqidah? And who are the Ahl Sunnah Wal Jama'ah? Why are they called Ahl Sunnah? And why are they called Al Jama'ah? Linguistically, Al-Aqidah, it means to knot or to bind or to fasten tightly to fortify or to consolidate and to cement, to tie something together and to fortify it and to strengthen it so that it will be firm. That is the linguistic meaning of aqidah. And the scholars of the people of Sunnah used to mention the linguistic meanings of words in order to understand where the technical meaning in Islam came from. The technical meaning of aqidah is based upon the linguistic meaning. However, it has its own shade of meaning that came in the Sharia, in the Quran, and in the Sunnah. Technically, the word Aqidah means a firm, unwavering belief. Firm, unwavering belief or conviction which does not allow any doubt in the mind and heart of the one who holds that conviction. Yani it is a conviction or a belief that is unwavering, unmovable in the mind and in the heart of the one who holds that belief. This is the technical meaning of Aqidah. And therefore, Al-Aqidah in Islam, it means those things that the Muslim believes in firmly and has no doubt about. And they are primarily Al-Arqan, Al-Islam, a sister, the six fundamentals of Iman. And you believe in Allah and the angels and the prophets and the resurrection, the judgment day, and Al-Qadr of Allah. However, they also include other matters which are confirmed from the matters of the unseen that are known to Allah alone and He has revealed in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah of the Prophet whether related to the matters of the past of the previous nation or the matters of the future that are known only to Allah. As for the term Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the term Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, it has been discussed by many scholars in great detail. However, one of the great scholars of our time, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Sali al-Uthaymin, rahimahullah, has said that لا حاجة لنا 
الى الى تطوير بتعريف اهل السنه والجماعه لان هذا اللقب it is its meaning it is clear completely clear it doesn't require a lengthy discussion there's no need for indeed the ahl sunnah wal jamaah are those who are mutamassiqun bi sunnah wa mujtami'un alayha those who hold fast to the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and who join together and unite themselves based on the sunnah the ahl sunnah wal jamaah it is those people who hold fast to the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to the exclusion of the opinion of men that contradict the sayings of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam those who hold fast to the sunnah and who unite and join themselves together as a united body as a jamaah based upon the sunnah based upon the sharia based upon the deen of allah the ahli sunnah wal jamaah have also been referred to by other names such as ahli al-istiba'ah because of their strict adherence of following the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the quran in kuntum tuhibbuna allah fattabi'uni that if indeed you love allah then follow me follow the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fattabi'uni al-istiba'ah strictly adhering to the instruction and advice and command and prohibitions of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam it is required by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for those who truly believe therefore this name has also been used for the ahl sunnah wal jamaah and they are also referred to by the name at-ta'ifa al-mansura and that name came from the hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam yani the the sect or the group that would be victorious that would be supported it would receive the nasr from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hadith in which the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that there would remain a ta'ifa a group from amongst the muslims until yawm al-qiyamah that would remain victorious that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would even either give them victory on the battlefield in the worldly matters or he would give them victory in the proof that he gave to them from the quran and the sunnah to overcome all of those who oppose and dissuade from the correct way likewise al-furqa al-najiyah the same that yani based on the hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in which he said that the jews were divided into 71 sects and the christians were divided into 71 sects and he said my ummah would be divided into 73 all of them would be in the fire except one they said which is that one yani the one that would not be in the fire he said it is the one those who are upon that which i am upon today man kana aw ma kana ma kuntu ma kana alayhi ana aliyawm ashabi that which i am upon yani his way his belief and his practice and his ibadah whoever is following that way and the way of his companions then they are the ones who will be saved so this is the what we wanted to mention in the introduction and for the contents of the book as i mentioned earlier it deals with primarily the six pillars of iman with some detail and explanation of the points about which there is some difference of opinion amongst the muslims uh up until our time and also some other matters yani related to the position of the sahaba radiyallahu anhum ajma'in and their superiority over those who came after them and who was the best from amongst the sahaba and so on and obedience to the muslim rulers and other such matters this evening we as an ilahi ta'ala we would like 
to begin with the first paragraph that Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd has mentioned in his book Aqidah Ahl-Sunnah Wal-Jama'ah and discuss briefly the comments that have been made concerning this first paragraph. The Imam Rahimahullah begins the first paragraph Bab Ma Tantifu Bihi Al-Alfina Ma Tantifu Bihi Al-Alfina That which is pronounced on the tongue that which the people express by their tongue. And that which is believed, and is a conviction of belief, that is within the heart. That which is pronounced on the tongue and the conviction or faith or belief that is in the heart. Of those obligatory matters, those obligatory things of the religion. This chapter or what he has mentioned here is the chapter. It is that which is spoken on the tongue and that which is believed in the heart of the obligatory matters of religion. وَمِن ذَلِكَ الْإِمَانُ بِالْقَلْبِ وَالنُّطْفُ بِالْلِسَانِ بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ لَا إِلَاهَ غَيْرُهُ يعني from amongst those things that are obligatory of the matters of religion that is to be pronounced on the tongue and it is to be believed in the heart from amongst those obligatory matters it is al-iman bin khalub that a person has iman, faith belief, true faith that he has this iman in his heart that is obligatory on the believers al-iman bin khalub wal-nutfu bin lisan and that he expressed that which he has in his heart on his tongue it is not enough just to believe it in the heart, but also it has to be expressed on the tongue. And likewise, as most of the scholars of the people of Sunnah said, that the comprehensive definition of Al-Iman, it is the conviction that is in the heart, and that which is spoken on the tongue, and it is acted upon by the body part. It requires both conviction in the heart, or it requires not only conviction in the heart, but it also requires that the person express it, testify to it with their tongue and act in accordance with it. And many also, many of the scholars of the people of, the, of Sunnah said that Iman increases and decreases. And this is the correct position of Islam, that Iman increases and decreases. It doesn't remain stable. It depends on the individual. It increases with obedience to Allah. And it decreases with disobedience to Allah. So here, Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, Rahimahullah, said, from amongst those obligatory matters of the religion, is that a person has Iman in his heart, and that he expresses it on, on, on the tongue. What does he express on the tongue? That Allah is one God. He is not many gods. He is one. And there is no ilah other than him. And as we will see in the explanation of this, La ilaha ghayruhu, which is equivalent to the statement of shahada, that if a person enters into Islam upon it, La ilaha illallah. The true meaning of La ilaha illallah and the true meaning of La ilaha ghayruhu, it is not that there is no God other than Him. It is not that there is no God except Allah. Because the Quran testifies in many places to the fact that there are many gods that are worshipped by the people, however they are false gods. 
the true meaning of la ilaha ghayruhu wa la ilaha illallah it is la ilaha it means la ma'bud bihaqqin that there is no god which deserves to be worshiped except allah there's no there's no god that is worshiped that has the right to be worshiped except allah otherwise there are many gods that are worshiped there are many things that are taken as an ilah instead of allah and worshiped falsely Then he said, also of those things that are to be, be believed in the heart and pronounced on the tongue, is that in reference to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لا شبيها له ولا نذيرا له That he doesn't have any شبيه, any, anything or anyone that is like him, or is similar to him, or resembles him. لا شبيه له ولا نذيرا له And he doesn't have anyone that is equal to him. ولا ولد له And he doesn't have any offspring. ولا والد له and he doesn't have any parents ولا صاحبة له nor does he have any companion or wife or spouse ولا شريك له nor does he have any partner that shares with him in that which is from his exclusive right the Sheikh says in the explanation of this first paragraph he says that this statement of Ibn Abi Zayd rahimahullah is a clarification of those matters which are expected to be upon the tongue of the Muwahideen the people of Tawheed the people who worship Allah alone these are the things that should be these statements La ilaha illallah these, these statements similar to this is, is that which is expected to be upon the tongue of the people of Tawheed the Muwahideen and it is that which they believe or they have a firm conviction of it in their heart from the issues or the matters of Usuluddin and in the issues or the matters of Usuluddin the fundamentals of the deen the fundamentals are the matters of creed, belief, al-aqidah these are the things these are the statements that should be upon the tongue of the people of Tawheed and, that, and it is that which should be in the heart of the people of Tawheed And these are the matters of belief that will be mentioned as follows. The first statement that he explains is the statement of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, وَمِنْ ذَلِكَ الْإِمَانُ بِالْقَلْبِ And from amongst those things that are found in the tongue and in the heart, it is having faith in the heart. And that Iman, it is al-Tafdiq, al-Jazm, al-Wafiq. Yani it is testifying. Confirming the certainty and the truthfulness of these statements of La ilaha illallah and that which is similar to it. It is having a firm conviction and testifying to the, with certainty to the truthfulness of this statement. That belief which is in the heart, it is not mixed with any doubt or uncertainty. It is not mixed with any doubt or any certainty. The true believer is sure about it. And it rests in his heart. A rest that nothing can move, nothing can shake it. But it remains firm. And as for the pronouncement of such things on the tongue, he said then after the person believes like that in their heart, then the tongue agrees with it, agrees with that which is held in the heart. The tongue expresses That which is held in the heart, it agrees with that confirmation of the truthfulness of such statements. 
it admits to it and it confesses that La ilaha illallah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one and that nothing should be worshipped besides Him. Allah is one in everything. This statement, wahid, that Allah is one ilah, one God. He said here that we should note that this oneness of Allah, the wahdaniyah of Allah, the uniqueness of Allah, that He is unique and distinct from anything in the creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator, al-khaliq, and everything besides Him is makhluq, creation. Allah is separate and distinct and unique from everything that He has created. He is ilahun wahid, one in everything. He is one in His that, in His divine being. He is one. One divine being. And there is no other divine being besides Him. There are not multiple or numerous divine beings. He is the only one. He is one in His rububiyah, in His Lordship, as the Rabb. Rabbul Alameen, He is the only creator. He is the only one that provides for and sustains the universe. He is the one who controls and directs it, and no one can interfere with Him in that Lordship, that Rububiyah. He is alone, one in that. There is no one besides Him who has ownership of the creation, or who has the authority over the creation, or who decides the affairs of the creation. And this is as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in Surah Al-A'raf, chapter 7, verse 54, أَلَا لَهُ الْخَلْقُ وَالْأَمْرُ أَلَا لَهُ الْخَلْقُ ibn Kathir, in his tafsir of the Qur'an, concerning this verse, أَلَا لَهُ الْخَلْقُ وَالْأَمْرُ He said, it means, لَهُ الْمُلْقُ وَالْتَصَرُّقُ الْخَلْقُ it means al-mulk, that he is the one who has sovereignty over everything. He is the owner who owns everything. And al-amr, it means that he has tafarruf, the right to do as he wills in that creation. Allah lahu al-naam, Surah Al-A'raf, chapter 7, verse 54. Allah lahu al-khalqu wal-amr, isn't it so that the khalq, the mulk, he is the creator, therefore he is the one who owns, he is the sovereign ruler. وَلَهُ الْأَمْرُ The command, it means التصرف, that he has the free will to do as he please with his creation. تَبَارَكَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ Blessed indeed is Allah, the Lord of the world. Likewise, the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Sabah, chapter 34, verse 22. And this verse is of great importance. If we examine what the scholars of Tafsir have said about this verse, we will see that it is an all-inclusive verse which eliminates any possibility of anyone having any ownership of anything that is in the universe, or even sharing in that ownership or in that authority, or even that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes help from anyone in his authority and ruling over the universe, and even he has negated the possibility of anyone having the right to intercede with him in his universe except by his will. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in this verse, Call on those who you claim, who you worship besides Allah, who you claim to be God besides Allah. Call on them. They don't possess or control or own even that which is equal to a zarra. 
And Azarra, though today some people translated it as an Adam, but in fact the scholars of the people of Sunnah, as Al-Hafiz says in Fath al-Bari, Al-Hafiz al-Askalani, Ibn Hajj al-Askalani, he said that the meaning of Zarra, it is a type of ant, a very small ant. It is so small that even a hundred or thousand of them wouldn't have any weight. He said that they don't even have that amount of ownership or control of anything in the heavens nor in the earth. They have no control or ownership of anything. وَمَا لَهُمْ فِيهِمَا مِنْ Nor do they have in the heavens or the earth any share in Allah's control or authority over everything that is contained in them. They don't even share in it at all. وَمَا لَهُ مِنْهُمْ مِنْ nor does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take from them anyone as a helper for him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is without need of anyone to help him. And there is no benefit from anyone who will intercede with him except the one who he gives permission to. And no one can intercede even with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except by his permission and those who he is pleased with. Also, he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only he is one in his divine being, his back, and one in his rububiyah, his lordship, but he is also one in his asma wa sifat, in his name and characteristics. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has the most beautiful names, and they are exclusively his names, and nobody shares with him in those names, nor in his divine characteristics, qualities that he is described by. Nobody shares with him, no one or no one shares with him in the reality of the meaning of those names or characteristics, nor in the how of those characteristics. What is the reality? How do they function? The reality of Allah's characteristics, it is something that no one shares with him in those things from his creation. Yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his seeing and his hearing and his knowledge, nobody shares with him in the true meaning of seeing and hearing and knowledge that is attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because in all of those things his seeing as well as his hearing or his knowledge and his power is perfect while the seeing and the hearing and the knowledge and the power of the creatures is imperfect. Likewise he said he is also one in his right to worship and the ubudiyah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one and there is no one or nothing along with him that has a right to that worship which belongs to him alone. Allah subhanahu wa and he is ilahul wahid in his ubudiyah, his right to be worshipped. Then the Shaykh says, the statement of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, La ilaha ghayruhu, that there is no ilah other than him. Meaning, there is no one that deserves worship other than him. La ilah, it means there is no one that deserves worship other than Allah. As for al-ma'budat, ghayruhu fa as for those things that are worshipped other than Allah, there are many. There are many things that are worshipped besides Allah. However, they are aliha, ba'afila. They are false gods. They are being worshipped, but they don't have a right to be worshipped. They are false gods that have no right and do not deserve to be worshipped besides Allah. And he said the reason why they don't deserve to be worshipped 
is because because they don't control anything of the matter. They have no control and no power and no authority. Therefore, how can they deserve to be worshipped? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Nahb, chapter 16, verse 73, that they are worshipping instead of Allah that which has no control for them of their sustenance in the heavens or the earth. They don't control anything of their sustenance, not in the heavens nor in the earth, nor are they able to do so. That means that if they don't control anything, how do they deserve to be worshipped? He said, Al-Ibadah Al-Haqqa Hiya Ibadatullah Wahda. That's a true Ibadah. It is only when one worships Allah alone. To worship other than Allah, or to worship Allah along with something other than Allah, then this is false worship. The true ibadah, al-ibadah al-haqqa, it is worshiping Allah alone. And this is from the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Hajj, chapter 22, verse 62, That is because Allah, He is al-haqq. Therefore, he is the one who deserves to be worshipped. And that which they worship, besides Allah, it is false. Therefore, the worship of them, it is false. Then he mentioned the saying of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, Rahimahullah, وَلَا شَبِيهَا لَهُ وَلَا نَذِيرَ لَهُ That he doesn't have any shabih. Anything or anyone that is similar to him. Nor does he have any nadir, that which is equal to him. He means that there is nothing similar or equal or resembling him in his that, in his divine being. There is nothing that is similar, nor resembles, nor equal to Allah in his divine being. Nor is there anything similar to him or equal to him in his name nor in his characteristics, nor in his actions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unique in his divine being, his that, as well as in his asma'u'l-sifat, as well as in his af'al, his actions. And this is like the thing, of, or this is based upon the thing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Surah Al-Shura, chapter 42, verse 11, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ there is nothing like him, nothing similar to him. And he is the one who, has, who is all hearing and who is all seeing. And here it is important to note that this verse is a principal proof of the people of Sunnah, of a very important point concerning the Tawheed of Allah's names and characteristics. And it is that in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has both negated any likeness to him, while at the same time confirming that he indeed hears and sees. That means we have to confirm that Allah hears, and Allah sees, and Allah has power, and whatever he has described himself with, we cannot deny it, and we cannot reinterpret it. We have to affirm it, while negating that there is any likeness to Allah. It is negation of there being any likeness to him and affirmation that indeed he has these divine names and characteristics. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no one equal to him 
in any of these things, in any way whatsoever. And this is understood from the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Akhlaq, chapter 112, verse 4, And there's no one that is a kufu, yani for Allah, there's no one equal to him. There's no one comparable to him. There's no one similar to him. Then he mentioned the saying of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, that he doesn't have any walad, yani he doesn't have any offspring, and he doesn't have any walid, he doesn't have any parents. And this is also taken from the saying of Allah in Surah Al-Ikhlas, chapter 112, verse 3, that he doesn't, yani he wasn't born, lam yalid. He wasn't born, he didn't have parents that brought him into being. Nor that he gave birth to anyone or anything. And this is also similar to the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Mu'minun, chapter 23, verse 91. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not taken a child, any offspring. And there is no other God, nothing that deserves to be worshipped along with Him. The ayat of this topic that came in the Quran, in the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are many, and they indicate that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to be declared free from any offspring or parents, and that He is not like His creation in this matter. Allah is not like the creation, that everything in the creation has to be born, that it has something that brings it into existence and it brings other things. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one that is eternal, that is, that always was and always will be. He is the first and He is the last. And He is the first, nothing being before Him, and He is the last, meaning that nothing is after Him, though there is no end to Him. Then He said, the saying of Al-Imam Ibn Abizayt, وَلَا صَاحِبَ لَهُ And there is no companion for him. Yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't have a wife, a spouse. Yani he doesn't have a wife, as do the creatures. Unlike his creatures, he doesn't have to have a spouse. And he has negated this from himself. In his saying in Surah Al-Jinn, chapter 72, verse 3, وَأَنَّهُ تَعَالَ جَدُّ رَبِّنَا مَتَّقَذَ صَاحِبَةً مَتَّقَذَ صَاحِبَةً وَلَا وَلَدًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not taken for himself a spouse, a wife, nor has he taken a child. وَلَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ The last statement of Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd وَلَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ يعني Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He doesn't have any shariq anything or anyone that is similar to him, nor any nabir, that which is equal to him, nor any relative, offspring or walid, parents, nor sahiba, or spouse or wife. And likewise he said, wala sharika lahu, he has no partner. He has no partner in any of the things that have been mentioned previously. And shirk of every type, in any fashion or form, that it comes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has negated it from himself, even the least type of shirk. And this is, as mentioned in the previous ayah from Surah Al-Sabah that we mentioned, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it clear that there is no one and nothing 
in the heavens or the earth that owns anything, nor shares in the ownership of anything, nor does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take help from anyone or anything in the creation, nor can anyone intercede with him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited, he has made haram al-ishraq, that is a shirk, he has made it haram, and he has threatened and warned that those who engage in it would suffer from a permanent, lasting, disgraceful, humiliating punishment. And he has made clear that he will not forgive the one who does it, that he will never forgive the one who falls into shirk. Therefore, it is important to understand as Tawheed. This is the first issue that Al-Imam Ibn Abi Zayd, Rahimahullah, has discussed, the issue of Tawheed, because it is the most important issue. A Muslim should know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one, and that nothing else deserves to be worshipped besides Him, nor does anyone share in those things which are His exclusive rights, especially the right of worship. Nor does anyone or anything have any similarity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his characteristics and qualities. And whoever falls into shirk in these matters, then know that that person has fallen into that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never forgive if a person dies on it. If a person dies on shirk, major shirk, the shirk that takes a person out of Islam, if a person dies in that condition, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never forgive them. And this is mentioned in the Quran in more than one place. And amongst those things of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that which he has said in Surah Al-Nisa, chapter 4, verse 48, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَيْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ That indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala لَا يَغْفِرُ أَيْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ Allah will never forgive that anyone associates something with him, that they give that which belongs to him to other than him, or that they attribute to other than him the divine names or characteristics that are his exclusive names and characteristics and qualities. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive it. That is his saying, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ He doesn't forgive and he forgives whatever is less than that to whomever he wills. Any, anything less than shirk, Allah might forgive it to whomever he wills. He might forgive or he might punish. And therefore the scholars of the people of Sunnah said that the one who commits a sin, especially the kabair, the major sins, and who does not repent from it. If he repents from it, Allah accepts sincere repentance and removes it, and he will not be called to account for it. However, if a person dies while committing some major sin that they have not repented from, then they are tahta mashiyatillah. They will be subjected to the will of Allah. That he forgive whatever is less than shirk to whomever he will. Maduna dalik, that which is less than shirk. Indeed, the scholars of the people of Sunnah and the scholars of Tafsir explain the meaning of Maduna Dalit. That which is less than shirk. It means everything because shirk is the greatest sin. Therefore, anything other than shirk is less than it. That means anything that a person did other than shirk, other than worshipping something other than Allah, or worshipping something along with Allah, or attributing to others than Allah that which belongs to Allah alone. Whoever does other than that, then they have the ability to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they fulfill the conditions of the tawbah, Allah accepts sincere repentance. And if not, then Allah might forgive them if He will according to His mercy. 
Therefore, he may punish them if he will according to his justice. The Sheikh closes here by summarizing this paragraph, saying that from amongst those things which are obligatory for the person to believe in and to have a firm faith in, from the matters of the fundamentals of the deen, yani al the matters of creed or belief, it is to confirm and to confess to the wahdaniya of Allah, that Allah is one and unique. In number one, his that, his divine being, that he is one, and there is no other one besides him. And he is one in his rububiyah, his lordship, that he is the creator and the lord and the controller of everything in the heavens and the earth. And he is one in his uluhiyah, his rububiyah, and his right to be worshipped. And he is one in his asma, and his sifat, and his as'al, his names and characteristics, and his actions. To confirm Allah's oneness in these things, and a tanzih, to negate from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any shariq, partner, or nabir, or equal, or shabih, likeness, or one being similar to him, or any walad, and offspring, or walid, parent, or sahiba, spouse. This is the end of what we wanted to discuss this evening in the moments that are remaining. Perhaps we can take any comments from the brothers or the sisters or any questions about what we have said or any corrections that from what we have said. Now. Well, it means that there is some likeness, resemblance or similarity, but not in everything. With an nadir, it means that they are the same. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no one that is equal to him, meaning exactly the same. Nor is there anyone similar to him or resembling him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is far superior, separate and distinct from everything in the creation. Now. As far as the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in which he said that the Jews and Christians would be divided into seventy-one and seventy-two sects, and Muslims would be divided into 73 sects, and all of those sects, yani deviant sects, who deviated from the correct deen, they would be in the fire, except one, the one who is upon that which he was upon, following his way, and the way of his companions. It means that, first, this hadith is from those texts that are called wa'idiyah, yani in the Qur'an there are statements which are wa'id, promises from Allah, that He promised the people He will give them paradise if they obey Him and believe in Him. And there is Wa'id, that He threatens the people who disobey Him and disbelieve in Him, that He will punish them. The people of Sunnah said that this hadith and that which is similar to it, it is from those things that are the Wa'id, the threat of Allah. And the people of Sunnah believe that the Wa'id, the promise of Allah, it will be. There is no doubt about it. Allah will fulfill His promise. As for his threat, 
He might punish or he might forgive. It is for him to do as he pleases. Therefore, the people from those sects who deviated in the fundamentals of the deen or in other than that, and they separated from that which was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an and in the authentic Sunnah. Those people are threatened with the hellfire. But it doesn't mean that they are guaranteed to be in the hellfire. Allah might forgive them if He wills. And if they are thrown in the hellfire, and they have committed sins, major sins, from which they didn't repent, if Allah punishes them out of justice, they in fact, yani they being deserving of that punishment. If Allah punishes them, they will not remain in the hellfire. Because the people of Tawheed, who died believing in the oneness of Allah, and they have not died on shirk, whatever sin they have committed, either Allah would forgive them, or He would punish them for some time, and then they would come out of the fire, and they would enter the paradise. And that is the position of the people of Sunnah, the correct position of Islam, as it has been explained in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah of the Prophet is there any other comments before we uh, leave? We should just take a few moments to look at the questions. Which are your questions? These questions have been prepared to focus on the important points of our topic. And also to help you to prepare yourself for those who intend to take the examination at the end of this course. Assalamualaikum. Now, uh, one of the sisters said that I said that everything in the that I said that everything in the creation has to be born. She said, "What about the Prophet Adam, Adam?" The meaning here of walad and walid it means that everything comes into existence through the way that Allah has decreed it to be. And Allah has decreed for humanity in general to be born from a mother and a father. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everything. He can do whatever He wills. And therefore, He has brought into existence from His creatures, Adam alayhi salam, the first man, and the first prophet, as the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi said that Adam alayhi salam was the prophet, that he was the first prophet. And Nuh alayhi salam was the first messenger. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed and decided for a wisdom, for a hikmah that is known to him to show his power of creation that even though he has made it as the norm that people would come into this world by birth from a mother and a father, he has brought Adam into existence without a mother or father by his creative ability. And likewise, he has brought into existence the wife of Adam, Hawa, through the creation of Adam, yani through the creation from a man without a mother. And he has brought about the creation of Isa through a mother without a father. And all of these only show the greatness and the glory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his power to do whatever he wills. Uh, the question now. The difference between Prophet and Messenger is not our discussion now, and it is a lengthy difference of opinion. There is no time to discuss it. However, I would just say that the scholars differ concerning what is the difference, and Allahu A'lam, I haven't heard or read any discussion from the scholars of the various opinions that is conclusive or final. 
they have given various interpretations of the difference between the Prophet and Messenger. However, none of them are based upon a clear, authentic hadith of the Prophet or a clear ayat of the Quran. They are ijtihad, and the scholars have different. In any case, some of them have said that a messenger is one who is not only given revelation, but he is commissioned to go out and deliver the message while prophets are not. And that is yani, a common interpretation of the scholars. However, it is not, yani, it is not free of uh, yani, being criticized. We can criticize this argument. Some of them said that a prophet is one who follows and acts upon the law of a previous prophet while a messenger brings a new law and so on. And all of these interpretations are ishtihad of the scholars and there is no clear con- conclusive uh, evidence for any of them as far as I know in Allah's best. In any case, quickly, before we go to the masjid of Salat, so that we may help one another to answer these questions, based upon which will be the examination at the end of this course, insha'Allah. The first question briefly mentioned the title of the book under study in this course and its subject. And the title of the book is the Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah or Sharp Explanation of Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And its subject is dealing with the Islamic belief system. What Muslims are required to believe in primarily the six pillars of faith, our channel Iman al-Sitta, and that which branches from them and the other matters of the unseen. Mention the author's name, date of birth and death or something of his life and work. Uh, life and work. He is Abu, Abu Muhammad Abdul Nabi Zayd al-Qayrawani, and he was born in the year 310 and died in the year 386. Something that has been said about his life and work, Yani, is that he was a well-known scholar. Even as a young man, he was very scholarly, and he wrote a book that became very famous. And he, even in his youth, at the age of 17, he wrote many other books, and people from many different countries came to learn and study from him. And he was very firm upon the Sunnah, defending the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and refuting those who deviated from it, that is, the people of innovation, the Ahl Bidah. Uh, the next question defines al-aqidah linguistically and technically. Al-aqidah linguistically it means uh, to tie or to match or to bind or to cement something and technically it means the firm conviction that is in the heart, that is unwavering and that there, there is no room in it for doubt in that which we believe in. The discussed word Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah, why are they called by this name and mentioned three other names they are referred to by. The Ahl-Sunnah or Jama'ah are those Muslims who are following the path of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and those who came after him. Why are they called by this name? They are called Ahl-Sunnah because they strictly adhere to the Sunnah of the Prophet, to the rejection of that which contradicts it. And they are called Al-Jama'ah because they are a group, yani they group together, they join together and unite together based upon the Sunnah of the Prophet, the truth, the Sharia, the Deen of Allah. Uh, mention three other names they are referred to by, Ahlul Hiskibah, those who strictly adhere or follow the Prophet Al-Taifah Al-Mansura, the victorious group, and uh, Al-Firqa and Najiyah, the same Mention the four points included in the condition of the heart and the confession of the tongue that Allahu ilahun wahidun. Allah is one God. What are the four points in the conviction that one should 
the other condition in the heart concerning the statement and confession on the tongue, concerning the statement that Allah is one God, and that Allah is one in His divine being, is that, and that Allah is one in His rububiyya, His Lordship, and that Allah is one in His rububiyya, or uluhiyya, and in His right to be worshipped, and Allah is one in His asma, with besides His name and characteristics. Mention some of those matters which one must declare Allah to be free from, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from having anyone similar to him, or anyone equal to him, or having a partner, or offspring, or parents, or a spouse. What is the correct meaning of la ilaha ghayruhu? There is no God other than him. The correct meaning is that there is no God, no true God. There is no true God that deserves to be worshipped other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are many gods, false gods, which do not deserve to be worshipped. Mention a denial or proof for the author's statement, he has no likeness or equal or offspring or parents, and it is the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لم يلد ولم يلد, and also the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ولم يكن له كفوان أحد. Discuss the hukum shari'i, the legal ruling concerning al-ishra' shirk, that is the hukum shari'i, the legal ruling in the sharia concerning al-ishra' or shirk, it is that it is muharram, it is haram, it is forbidden. It is of those things that Allah has threatened, it's severe punishment for it, and also we can add to this that it is of those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not forgive. It is something that whoever dies on it without repenting from it, Allah would not forgive them. And finally, is it sufficient to believe in the wahdaniyyah, the oneness or the uniqueness of Allah in the heart without confessing it by the tongue? It is not sufficient for someone just to believe that Allah is one in those things in his rububiyyah and his asma wa sifat in his rububiyyah but it is required to confess it on the tongue and likewise it is required to act upon it as we said that the comprehensive definition of al-iman it is al-ertiqat and the conviction in the heart and it is also speech on the tongue and it is action by the body parts that one acts in accordance with what they have believed in and said and it increases and decreases, increases with obedience so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and decreases disobedience. Subhanak Allahumma wa bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.